Perhaps you could just take uh, your Bibles again as we uh, look together at those words that Louise read for us a few moments ago from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 and verse 18. And as we come to God's word, let's again pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are a God who still speaks. And we pray that you will do that now. That your Holy Spirit will take your word and apply its truth to our hearts. Help us to engage our minds. But Lord, beyond that, we pray that you will change us, mould our wills, and impact us by the truth of your word. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Who are the people in our world who have the most power and influence? Every year, Time magazine produces a list of the 100 most influential people in the world. It doesn't choose an overall winner, but it lists people in five different categories, which include things like leaders and revolutionaries, artists and entertainers, Heroes and pioneers, builders and titans. The 2009 list isn't out yet, but last year's list included many people that I confess I had never heard of, along with some that I had. It may interest you to know that Tony Blair was included under the Heroes and Pioneers heading, as were Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, while the pop group Radiohead were classed as builders and titans. I'll leave it to you to work out how they might have earned those accolades. But Time also asked its readers to vote in a separate poll for the person they thought to be the most influential person in the world. And that did come up with an overall winner. His name is Shigeru Miyamoto. Now, if he's the most influential person in the world, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you anything more about him. But just in case you can't recall what his claim to fame is, he's a video game designer. Says something about the world in which we live, doesn't it? And there's no doubt that many would dispute who should be in and who should be out of a list like that. But it's clear that there is a pattern to those whom time considers to be important. Broadly speaking, you could say that the people in the list are there because of their intellect and how they use it, or because of the amount of power that they have. And those are often the kind of criteria that we use when it comes to assessing who's worth knowing, or the kind of person we aspire to be. We have a certain respect for those who have made the most of themselves academically, or who have done well financially and have some influence in local society. Perhaps we hope that our children will make more of their lives than we feel that we have done of ours. More quietly proud when they do well at school or when they land a high-powered job. That's not a new or a unique way of looking at life. Because we'll see this morning as we look at words written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth nearly 2,000 years ago that he was writing to a culture where the two things that mattered were wisdom and power. Greek culture placed a lot of emphasis on wisdom. 
And the kind of people who were revered were the thinkers and philosophers. The celebrities of the day were the great orators, and their fine-sounding speeches could draw a big crowd and gave them a high degree of influence in society. There were, of course, others who might not have been such accomplished public speakers, but who through commerce had become rich and acquired a certain level of power through their wealth. What counted in Corinth were wisdom and power. And Corinth, as you may know, was a very aspirational society. It was a place where some people who had come from modest backgrounds had managed to do well for themselves. But that presented quite a challenge to the Christians in Corinth because the basis of their faith didn't fit very well with the things that seemed to matter in their society. At the crux of the Christian faith was a divine being who had been crucified. And that wasn't the kind of role model that most people were going to aspire to be like. So as Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he wants to reassure the Christians there that they don't have to be wiser or more powerful than the people of influence in their city. They don't have to try to beat the orators or philosophers at their own game. Because God isn't trying to do that. The fact is that God is infinitely wiser and more powerful than anyone else. And in his wisdom and power, he's decided to work in a way that confounds and contradicts all that Greek or indeed any culture reveres. And there are two particular contradictions that are drawn out in this passage. The first is that God contradicts worldly wisdom and power through the cross. In verse 18, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you see there those two ideas of wisdom and power coming through? To those who are considered wise by the world, a crucified Messiah doesn't make any sense, and they can't see where the power lies. But that's exactly what God intends and has always intended. It was never going to be possible to come to God through worldly, human wisdom. And in verse 19, Paul quotes from Isaiah 29 and verse 14, where God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now God isn't saying that Someone who is wise or powerful, as this world defines those terms, cannot understand what the cross is all about. But what he's saying is that it's not possible to understand these things by using worldly wisdom. doesn't mean that we have to suspend all reason to understand and accept the Christian faith. It doesn't mean that we switch off our minds and simply believe. But there are many intellectual arguments that can be advanced to denigrate the message of the gospel, to mock it and sideline it. And we hear that from the likes of the Oxford academic Richard Dawkins, who takes delight in rubbishing the Christian faith on an intellectual level. And he's an example of an intelligent person, 
as this world defines those things. But someone who cannot make any sense of Christ and his cross. And there are plenty of other influential people in this world who've got on well, have achieved their goals, and have no time for God because he seems rather irrelevant to their lives. As far as they see it, he has nothing to offer them. And the apparent weakness of the cross doesn't fit with the values that they consider to be necessary to getting on in this world. If you've ever watched the BBC programme, The Apprentice, you can imagine what Sir Alan Sugar would say to a potential apprentice who told him that he or she was a Christian. I don't think there's anybody who's actually admitted to that so far on that programme. But he'd probably say, well, I don't care what you believe, but if it means that you're going to lie down and be walked over, I've got no room for you in my business. And that would be based on a misconception of what the Christian faith is all about. But there are plenty of people who think like that. And God says, if you're trying to make sense of me on your terms, that's not going to work. And in fact, I will ultimately make a fool out of you. That's what Paul's saying at the end of verse 20. The wise men and scholars and philosophers may have been revered in Greek society, but their wisdom is of no help when it comes to understanding God. Because he turns human wisdom on its head. You see, if we could work out God by human wisdom, then he would have all the restrictions of our fallen human nature. We cannot conceive of a perfect being because we are not perfect. So if we're trying to work out what the God of this universe should be like, we'll come up with a distortion. And we'll end up worshipping something that we have created rather than the one who has created us. Men and women cannot come to know God through their own wisdom. That's what Paul is saying in verse 21. But that doesn't mean that they cannot know God. Because the second half of verse 21 says that God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached. In other words, through the message of Jesus and his cross. He was pleased through that to save those who believe. God has revealed himself to us. And in his wisdom, he has told us that we cannot come to him just as we are. Trusting in our own goodness or wisdom or power. He's told us that we need his salvation. And that that is available through the cross of Jesus Christ. But that isn't what many people want to hear. And in verses 22 and 23, Paul shows how the message of the cross is an offence to two different sorts of people. If you look at verse 22, you'll see he says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. The Jews had experienced the dramatic workings of God in the past. He had brought them out of Egypt after ten horrific plagues. He had led them through the Red Sea and then parted the waters of the Jordan to lead them into the land that he'd promised them. And so they expected something even greater when the promised Messiah would come. They wanted something more than a little localized healing. And while admittedly bringing dead people back to life was pretty amazing, at the same time, Jesus hadn't done things on the scale that they expected. A dramatic overthrow of the Romans was what was required at the very least. But Jesus had failed to oblige. And had even allowed himself to be killed by the Romans. 
And it wasn't just any death. Crucifixion to a Jew was evidence of God's curse. In Deuteronomy it says that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. That's why in the famous passage in Isaiah 53, when it talks about God's suffering servant, it says he was despised and we esteemed him not. To a Jew, looking at Jesus on the cross, it wasn't something worthy of esteem. This was the ultimate humiliation. And as verse 23 says, it was a stumbling block to the Jews. For many, they couldn't get their heads around a crucified Messiah. For them, those two words were completely contradictory. Some of the Christians in Corinth would have been from a Jewish background. And were probably getting a hard time from their fellow Jews. But Paul is saying, don't be surprised that other Jews think you're mad. It doesn't make sense to them. Because Jesus isn't the Messiah that they were expecting. But as well as the Jews, Paul also deals with the Greeks. Because some of the Christians in Corinth would have been Gentiles coming from the Greek culture, which prized wisdom so highly. They'd have been having to deal with all the philosophical objections that people had to the cross. And again, Paul is trying to reassure them by saying it is going to appear foolish to those who want to try to understand it through human wisdom. In fact, he goes on to explain that it is only through God's intervention that anyone comes to understand the real power and wisdom of God, which is demonstrated at the cross. In verse 24, he says, to those whom God has called. And that shows us that the initiative comes from God. And so it is possible coming from a Jewish background to understand the wonder of the cross, just as it's possible coming from a Gentile background. But it needs God to work in any of us to enable us to understand that the cross is a triumph rather than a tragedy. If we were devising a world and working out how people would interact and how we would run that world, we wouldn't do it the way that God did. And there are many who think that God is foolish to have done what he did in sending his only son to a cross. In fact, for some, the idea is so foolish that they dismiss Christianity altogether. But this weak and foolish plan is far wiser and far more powerful than any human plan would ever have been and shows just how awesome God really is. You see, if we had a God whom we could completely understand, if we could have worked out how to save men and women, then we would have had no need for God because we would have been on a par with him. But God has chosen to contradict the wisdom of this world. And that ultimately is offensive to many. Because he's saying to us, I'm going to do things my way, without your help. There's nothing that you can contribute to my salvation plan. And so there are many who walk away from him because they cannot accept God on his terms. They want to have a say. They want to have some control. And yet for those who will accept God on his terms... In the cross, he has shown his love and grace and mercy to us in a way that is utterly compelling. How can we ignore the God who sacrificed himself for us and who did it when we were rebelling against him? 
and we're demanding the very death that saved us. God contradicts worldly wisdom and power through the cross. But he also contradicts it through Christians. And that's the second point that I want to bring out from these verses. It's what verses 26 to 31 are all about. God contradicts worldly wisdom and power through Christians. Here Paul turns to the Christians in Corinth and reminds them that most of them haven't come from influential or privileged backgrounds. In verse 26 he says, Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But that's part of God's plan. That's how he works. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, as verse 27 says. God doesn't often go for those who are powerful and influential in this world's terms. And he does that to prove his greatness. You see, if Christians were people who were naturally at the top of the pile in terms of power and intellect and influence, then that would reinforce all the things that this world puts great store by. And it would lead us to take pride in who we are and what we think we can give to God, what we can contribute to our salvation. And ultimately, it would reduce our need of God and our indebtedness to him. And what hope would there be for those of us who feel that we haven't been given those natural advantages? If you're an ordinary person doing an ordinary job, can you ever be acceptable to God if he only chooses the great people of this world? But instead of choosing those who might think themselves to be something, because others look up to them, God chooses the complete opposite. Look at how Paul describes it in verse 28 when he says that God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why has he done that? Well, verse 29 gives the answer, so that no one can boast before him. The temptation for the person who has some standing in worldly terms is to think that they're doing God a favor by following him. Whereas God wants his followers to come in dependence, not able to offer him anything. He wants them to realize, as verse 30 says, that it's because of him, because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus. So the only boasting we can do is in the Lord and what he has done for us. It is through Jesus' death on the cross that we can be made righteous and holy and can be redeemed from the bondage of sin. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is something that doesn't make sense to many people in our world. If you were to ask the hundred people in Time magazine's list of the most influential people in the world, what impact the cross of Jesus Christ has on their lives? Many of them would probably say that it doesn't influence their lives in any way. And that can be a bit unnerving for us if we are Christians. How come so many intelligent, educated, powerful people in our world have so little time for God? Well, the reason is that that is the way God intended it. Because God's way of working is not like the world's way. He doesn't put the emphasis where we do. 
He's not bothered about Christianity's street cred. He doesn't care if world leaders and media moguls and high-flying academics have little time for him. Because all the things that this world values most highly are not so important to God. He has nothing to prove. Because he made every one of us, rich and poor, powerful and oppressed, educated and uneducated. And he sent his son to die for anyone who will accept him on his terms. And surely that's reassuring for us, isn't it? Because none of us is likely to appear in any table of the world's most influential people. We're probably not going to merit an obituary in the Times, maybe even the Belfast Telegraph, when we die. We're effectively nobodies in the eyes of the world. But in God's eyes, we count. He sent his son to die for us. And if we have accepted that, if we've accepted that we needed him to die in our place, then we have understood something that some of the greatest minds in history have failed to grasp. And we will one day have a higher standing than most of those whom this world has classed as great. But as well as being a comfort to us, this passage is also a challenge to us. It challenges us in a number of ways. And the first may not be initially obvious, but it's a challenge that's implied in verse 21. And the words, the foolishness of what was preached. Many of us may be acquainted with the King James Version, which speaks of the foolishness of preaching. Which is not the most helpful translation Because Paul is not actually saying that the act of preaching is foolish. The fact remains, however, that there are many in our world who think like that. Certainly outside the church and also, alarmingly, sometimes within the church as well. And yet you'll notice that the way the message is heard is through preaching. Paul takes that as a given. Now, of course, preaching doesn't have to be to large crowds. But nonetheless, it does have to be done. The gospel does have to be proclaimed in some way. And there's a danger that if we lose confidence in the power of the message, then we will lose confidence in the way of communicating it. It's easier for people to listen to us if we're doing something positive for them, something that will make their lives better. And while it's right and vital that the gospel should have a social dimension to it, the problem's start if we think that that becomes enough. It's enough simply to show that we are Christians by the way we live. It's enough to show the love of Christ in practical ways. But God's word doesn't say that it's enough to stop there. Time and again we're told that people need to hear the truth of God's word communicated to them. And so we need people who are equipped to tell them that truth. That's why the course that I'm involved in setting up is, I believe, an important one. Because we increasingly live in a society where the role of the preacher is played down and devalued. How many young people have a real desire to serve God by preaching and teaching his word? And how many are being encouraged to test out whether they've been gifted by God to teach his word and should be exercising that gift? By not encouraging people to 
test out whether they've been gifted by God to preach or and by not funding them to do this? Are we guilty of saying in a very subtle way that it's not really vital that the message of the cross is preached? But there are other challenges that come from this passage. And the second I want to highlight is the challenge to recognize that whoever we are, preacher or not, we have nothing to give to God. Because there's still the temptation, is there not, To think that even though we may not be of great significance in world terms, we have some standing in our church or community, and that there is still some contribution that we can make to our salvation. There's something in us that is tempted to put some store by who we are. When God says, forget about all that, that's of no consequence to me. So don't get hung up on your position or your education or your status or even your service. Simply acknowledge that all you can give me is your sin. But do that. And allow me to deal with that. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. That we can offer nothing to God but our sin. But that's what he wants to accept. And in accepting that to bring us his forgiveness, his salvation. There's a final challenge to us that comes from these verses. And that is that we should never write off anyone as being beyond God's power to save. There isn't a minimum standard of education or income which is needed to become a Christian. It's possible for the illiterate and the uneducated To understand that Jesus died for them. To forgive them and make them right with God. So we need to be sure that we don't assume that there are certain types of people who could never become Christians. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. To nullify the things that are. And praise God that he does. Because it means that he's able to choose us and use us. What we need to ask ourselves, though, is whether our churches reflect that belief. Are our churches places where people feel welcome, regardless of their background or how they look or where they went to school or whether they're employed or not? Now, we can't help being the way that we are. We can't help the backgrounds from which we come. And this passage isn't saying that we should be, pretend to be different, that we should be, pretend to be stupid if we're not, or that we should pretend to be poor if we're not. But does the way that we treat people within the church show that ultimately we realise that those things don't matter? It doesn't matter whether you've been to university or not. It doesn't matter where you live or what kind of car you drive. When we're looking for people to lead or serve in the church. Do we look for those who might be most respected by the world? Or do we look for those who have the relevant spiritual gifts. And the humility to recognise that all they are or have is by God's grace. To many in our world the message of the cross seems foolish. But it is the message that they and we need to hear and keep on hearing 
Because for those who hear it and believe it and live in the light of it, it is God's power to save and transform. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the amazing God that you are. For the way in which you can find the way this world tries to work things out. We thank you for the power of your cross. May we never lose confidence in that. May that be what we proclaim to others. May that be what we live out in our lives through our attitudes, the way we conduct ourselves, the priorities we set. May we put Christ and him crucified right at the centre of our lives so that you may be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.